And everybody said amen. amen. So today's message is going to be a little bit different. And to my visitors, I say that it's going to kind of be a little bit of a graphic message. I'm not apologizing, and I'm not really warning you. I'm just letting you know that we try to follow the leading of the Holy Ghost. And we try to be, what you see is what you get. You can come talk to me anytime you want, and you're still going to get Josh. It's what we are. Sister Beth said, thank God. Brother Dean, was it true? Were you in Florida too? Yes. All right. All right. I feel it. I feel it. It was a good time. I got to see brother and sister Durham along the way. They send their regards. And I got to see brother and sister Mark and Danita Roberts. They send their love and misses and greetings to everyone. But... Um, yeah, so it's going to be a little bit of a graphic message, but I, I felt very clearly from the Lord that He is going to minister a word, okay? So if you'd stand for the reading of the word, I'd like to read three verses. The book of John, chapter 19, and I'd like to read 28 through verse 30. The book of John, chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. Say amen if you're there. Amen. Say amen if you're watching it on the screen. Amen. Say amen if you've got your Bible. Amen. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Brother Larry, would you pray over the service? Amen. And you may be seated. John here is writing at the end of Jesus' natural life. And this is kind of the conclusion of his ministry here on earth. And he was getting ready to ascend. He was getting ready to lay down his life. And we celebrated his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection yesterday with communion at our members' meeting. And I, I, Brother Ray, I'm just going to switch. It's ringing. We were trying to work out the lapel mic, and it's just ringing. But the, pro, the reading in John 19, 28 through 30, God is nearing the end, and, and He makes a statement before all of the people that strung Him up on the cross and all the onlookers. He said, I'm thirsty. 
And when he said that, the Scripture lets us know that he said that very specifically because he was fulfilling Scripture that had prophesied what they would do to him. In a moment, we'll read it. But the Lord, in his last kind of statement, he said, I'm thirsty. And what the people gave him was sour wine. Wine that tasted horrible. Wine that was no good. They could have given him one good last meal. Even our people that are on death row are given a great last meal. Anything they ask is prepared the way they want it, in the manner they would like it. We treat our most death row hardened criminals better than what Jesus Christ was treated on the cross. His, he said, I'm thirsty. And they didn't break open the best wine. It wasn't as good as the wine that he had touched and made out of water. It was sour wine. It was wine that was, was destined to be poured out on the ground. Wine that was, wasn't good for drinking. So in one final act of humiliation, one final jab at Jesus Christ, they gave him putrid sour wine. Even to the very bitter end, was it bitterly given to him. God was on the cross. And the scriptures that he fulfilled, Psalms 22:16 says, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones, and they stare, and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In Psalm 69 it says this, Reproaches have broken my heart, so that I am in despair. And I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Instead they gave me poison for food. And for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. That prophecy right there is what the Lord fulfilled on Golgotha. That prophecy right there is why the Lord opened His mouth and He let it be finished all the way. He said, I'm thirsty. And there was a pause just for a minute to see if a comforter would arise. To see if mercy would hand Him something else. To see if grace would just sweep in. But nevertheless, it went as it was told. They gave Him a bitter drink. They gave him poison. They gave him a slap in the face to go with the hundreds he had already had. Our God went through these things. And I would like to read you something that a man by Dave Menard, I give him the credit for this. But I read what he wrote and it really began to talk to me. He put a lot of work into this. This is the medical description of the flogging and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is coming from a medical viewpoint. Remember, Jesus had just finished a full Passover meal. Our equivalent would be a Thanksgiving meal. He then went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed all night. Since he knew the amount of suffering that he was about to endure, it is sufficient to say that he was experiencing a great deal 
of psychological stress. And sweating blood is called hematidrosis. It was when severe anxiety causes the release of chemicals that break down the capillaries in the sweat glands. And the sweat comes out tinged with blood. This also makes the skin around where this is happening very fragile and sensitive. Jesus was arrested and taken to Annas, where he was hit in the face. He was then taken to Caiaphas, and he was beaten again. He was taken to Pilate and Herod, and back to Pilate again, where he was flogged, in other words, whipped. The picture there, this is a Roman cat o nine tails. It was several whips tied together at the handle. And each individual braided leather whip had pieces of metal and sharp bone glued into the ends of it. When the whips would strike the flesh, instead of leaving a nice clean laceration, they would dig into the flesh and they would stay. The flogger would then have to pull the whips out, which would tear chunks of flesh off with it. The whip lashes that you normally think of are not what is produced here. Whole sections of flesh are torn off. After several blows, the back would be shredded that parts of the spine would be exposed. The lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. The sufferer's veins were laid bare, and the very muscles, the sinew, and the bowels of the victim were open to exposure. The whipping from would go from the shoulders down the back, the buttocks, and to the upper part of the legs. Roman floggings usually consisted of 39 lashes, but frequently were a lot more, depending on the mood of the soldier doing it. Many people died from this kind of beating even before they were crucified. At the very least, the person would experience tremendous pain and go into hypovolemic shock. Hypovolemic shock does four things to a person. The first thing it does is it makes the heart race trying to pump blood that isn't there. Then the blood pressure drops, causing fainting or collapse. The third thing is the kidneys stop producing urine to maintain what volume is left. And the fourth thing hypovolemic shock does is the person becomes very thirsty as the body craves fluid to replace the blood loss. Jesus was in hypovolemic shock. Notice that when he was carrying his own cross, he collapsed and had to have it carried for him. And he said, I thirst because of the terrible effects of this breathing or of this beating. Jesus was already in critical condition even before he was crucified. He probably did not have much skin left on his back 
when they were done with the flogging. But remember, after this flogging, that he was beaten again a third time. The purple robe that they put on him would have started to congeal to his body because of the blood. And after beating him with their fists and with a rod, they ripped off the purple robe that would tear away the congealed blood and put his own robe on him. The Judean thorns of the crown that was smashed into his head were anywhere from two to five inches long. They would have cut through the skin on his head. These were much bigger and stronger than the rosebush thorns that were used that we are used to seeing. They couldn't just set this crown of thorn on his head. They had to beat it on with a rod to make sure that the thorns stuck in his flesh. He then carries his own cross up the Via del La Rosa, the path that led to where he was to be crucified. This path has relatively steep incline to it, making it even harder to climb. And the Roman crosses were very heavy. They could be anywhere up to 200 pounds. And they were made of rough-hewn lumber. While he was carrying it, some of the wood splinters most likely pierced his already bloody back. The Roman spikes that you see here, these spikes were five to seven inches long and were tapered to a very fine point. They were usually driven through the wrist, not the hand. The wrist was considered part of the hand in Roman times. If the spikes were driven through his palms, his weight on the cross would have caused the skin to tear and he would have fallen off the cross. A spike beyond description. This is powerful. Beyond description, the pain of this was so bad that a new word was invented to describe that level of pain. The word is called excruciating. Excruciating literally means out of the cross. That's the picture of the wrist. Now I know we've had a service where we're worshiping and you're thinking, Pastor, this is a drastic turn. God's just setting the stage. But we're not so naive to where we can't handle what happened. We must be aware of what Jesus Christ went through. In front of our church stands a cross. It's not there to make our church look pretty. It's not there to make our building look beautiful. It is there to say to this community and every person that drives by and looks on that I remember what my God did for me. That I remember the price that He paid. That we say to everyone that sees it, 
I want to tell you about my God. I want to tell you about what he did for me. We're going to take a little bit of time. We're going through this. Those spikes were five to seven inches long. And they were driven through the wrist, not the hand. A spike through the wrist would have hit and caused, would have crushed. When they, when they drive it through the wrist, they hit the median nerve. It crushes it. Brother Greg, you know all about nerve problems. When that nerve was crushed, that's the pain that would drive a person out of their mind. And they called it excruciating. It means out of the cross. Think of it like this. Do you know the kind of pain that you feel when you hit your elbow's funny bone? You're actually hitting a nerve. Take a pair of pliers. Squeeze and crush that nerve. That's the kind of pain that Jesus was feeling in his arms all the time. The same thing would have been true for the nerves in his feet. Having been lifted up on the cross, his arms would have been stretched about six feet in length. And both shoulders would have become dislocated. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps would sweep across the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles become paralyzed and the intercoastal muscles are unable to act. Crucifixion is death by asphyxiation. In order to exhale, Jesus had to push up on his feet so that the tension on his diaphragm muscles would be eased just for a moment. But by doing this, his foot pushed through the spike, locking up against the tarsal bone, creating incredible amounts of pain. Also, he was scraping his bloodied back against the coarse wood of the cross after he exhaled. Then he would be able to relax and he would be able to take another breath in, repeating again. But again, he'd have to push himself up to exhale. All of this just for one breath. This would go on until the person wasn't able to push up and to breathe anymore. As Jesus slows down his breathing, he goes into respiratory acidosis. The carbon dioxide in his blood is dissolved into carbonic acid. This causes the acidity of his blood to rise. This leads to an irregular heartbeat and in addition to that, the hypovolemic shock would have caused an increased heart rate that continued, that contributed to heart failure, resulting in pericardial effusion, that's fluid around the heart, as well as pleural effusion. It is almost over now. The loss of tissue fluid has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood 
into the tissues. And the tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. While the markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain. Once feeling in the legs was gone, Jesus would be unable to push up in order to breathe, and death would occur quickly. And when the Roman soldier's spear went through his side, blood and water came out. This is exactly what would have happened if the spear ruptured the heart. The blood and water would be separated because of the pericardial effusion. Medically speaking, there is no doubt Jesus was dead. I know it's quiet in here and you're all listening very closely. That is a medical description of some of the things that Jesus was going through when he was crucified. It's not a game. It's not funny. It's a shame people make memes and they make mockery of it. God forbid any apostolic would do such. It's not a joke. I don't find it humorous. I don't tease about it. What God did for me, what God did for you, what God did for each other, it can never be valued. It's priceless. All of this was going on that I read, and I read it on purpose. I wanted you to know the pain that he was in, the condition he was in, the environment that he was going through. In the middle of this is when he looked down and he said, I'm thirsty. Who among us would see somebody suffering like that? Somebody who's weak, somebody who's frail, Somebody who's in horrendous pain. Somebody that can't even hurt anything right now. Who's lost everything. Who's been humiliated. Who's been tortured. Who's been ripped. Who's been cut. Who's been beat. Who's been spit on. Who's been mocked. Who among us would say, I'll give you sour wine. Nobody would. But they did. Laughing. Mocking. To his final breath, they were to him. More Life Tabernacle, the sacrifices he made when it came right down to it. Him saying, I thirst, was a test, a testament against all those people that stood at that cross. That even with his dying breath, he asked again of them, again of the world. 
He asked one thing of them. He said, I'm thirsty. What he was saying is, will you give me something that will comfort me? Will you give me something that will ease my pain? Will you give me just a little bit that will help me with the burden I'm going through? Will you shine just a little bit of hope into the darkness on the cross? All he was asking for was a teardrop of mercy. But what he got was rejection. For Life Tabernacle, there is somebody that is in this congregation right now. And I feel that there's somebody who's watching online. And I would say to all those viewers, don't turn this off. Don't walk away until you've been, you've been dealt with from God, until God's done speaking. You see, we love to come and get blessed by God, but I pointedly said, we've got to go beyond just looking for the blessing. We've got to go beyond always having a hand out, saying, God, fill my hand. God, give me. God, I need. God, I'd like. God, I want. God, I desire. God, I seek. God, I purpose. we got to get beyond that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't say, God, I need help. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is we should go through a metamorphosis where we are changed in our heart. Whoever you are that God's dealing with, it might be every single one of us, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it is. That God, I love, I love the scripture that says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. I love when it says that they are made a footstool. I love when it says that my cup will run over. But God... What I want you to know that today, this very minute, this very breath that I'm breathing, the very words coming out of my mouth right now, God, there's got to come a moment in our lives that we stop focusing on how much wine is in our cup. We stop looking if it's running over. And I say, God, let me give some of that to you. Let me quench the thirst of God. Let me quench the thirst that God is asking for. God, my cup runs over. Let me take the spoils of it and give it back unto you in praise and worship. The world we live in is always asking, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? What do you have to offer? What is it that you can bless me with? How is it that you can tickle my eardrums, preacher? What is it that you can make me you can play that'll make me dance? I'm not trying to come down on you. I'm not trying to be hard, but I'm trying to preach that God will change us. I don't know if I can give that up, God.
do you mean? He stood on the cross and all he's asking for is for us to quench his thirst. I don't know if I can change my schedule to pray more. I don't know if I can change my lifestyle to fast more. Put a title over this message and it was called I Thirst. Not as in we're thirsting, but I have been sent here today to tell every single person that's in this house and listening that there is a God in heaven who is very, very thirsty for you. It's not a little parched. God is desiring you. Matthew 16, 24 says, And then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You just read what having a cross on your back means. I preached it to you. Was there any part of it that sounded fun? Was there any part of it that sounded glorious? Then why do we try to make our Christian walk like the fun of the world and like the glory of the world? The Word of God says that if they love you, you're of them. But because you're not of them, they will hate you. As they hated me. You keep, I feel the Holy Ghost. Somebody, you're asking the world to quench your thirst. The problem is, you've been drinking the Kool-Aid so long, you've lost your taste buds. This world's been serving up bitter and spoiled wine to you, and you think it tastes good. says in Timothy, he said, whoever desires. He says in Timothy that God desires all people, all people, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Two different things, but one. And his desire is for everybody to be saved. But not just saved, but to have truth. And the truth of heaven right now is that God is desiring something from us. I see in everyone's life, I see the Lord hanging on that cross. I want everybody to do a mental picture of this. Don't be scared, don't hide away. Look at the bloody body of Christ in your mind. Look at the spikes in His arms and the spikes in His ankles. 
Look at the blood being poured down from his body and the crown of thorns. His disfigured face. Look at the Lord. Now in your mental mind, I want you to picture nobody before the cross but you. There's no Roman soldiers. There's no crowd mocking. It's just you and Jesus. What is your answer? When the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords looks down on you through bruised and beaten eyes and tears and blood and He speaks directly to you and He says, I'm thirsty, child. Lord, you ask too much. You ask what I cannot give. Would we dare, would we dare let those words leave our mouth to Him? Lord, I'm not ready to give to You. Lord, I'm not ready. And He's saying, but look at what I've done for You. Look at what I'm doing for You. Look at where I brought You from. Look at what I've done for You. If you would have asked of me, I would have given you more. He said, if you ask anything in my name, I'll give it to you. Folks, it was great to run. It was great to dance. It was great to worship. But Larry, I felt the ministering spirit of God. But that ministering spirit of God is beginning to ramp it up right now. Because God loves your worship. God loves your praise. But what He loves more is your soul. God, I'll give you my jump. God, I'll give you my dance. God, I'll give you my wave offering. God, I'll give you my whoo. But God is saying, I'm not thirsty for that. I'm thirsty for your soul. Is there any too thing too big to give to him? Is there anything worth holding back from him? Look at where he's brought us. Look at what he's done for us. Look at what he's put up with. 
I don't know about you and I can't speak for you. But that God that hang on that cross, he's put up with a whole lot of Josh Aaron. He's put up with a lot of my attitude and a lot of my faults and a lot of my sin. God, if there is anything left in me that I've not given over to you, I surrender it right now in the name of Jesus. God, if there's every ounce of fiber, if there's one single thing, Lord, that you're asking of me, that you're requiring of me, oh, Lord, so help me, God, I give it unto you. God, I'm willing to be a child that will quench your thirst. Lord, I want to feed you. Lord, I want to serve you. Oh, we love reading the scripture that says if anybody asks, I'll give them water of living. From their belly will flow rivers of living water. We love that kind of word. We love those promises. This altar's open for anybody that would like to come and find a place with for God. I don't need any music. I don't need any singers. I don't need a choir. There is not a single person in this house that God has not been dealing with. We can sit and act like it's not me, but oh yes it is. It's every single one of us, including me. I'm first. I'm telling you God's dealing with me. Oh God, I give it unto you. God, I'm not holding on to it anymore. <laughs> 